Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Stephen Lecce, Ontario's Minister of Education, joins us to discuss Ontario's plans to provide additional financial support for young learners and funding to enhance safety and protection in schools. Well, it was inevitable that the federal government's handling of COVID-19 vaccines would become a political football. We're going to get a read from Leger Marketing about how Canadians feel about that. And some good economic news for Hamilton. A major step has been taken towards the development of a film studio near Hamilton's West Harbour. Aon Studio Group confirmed the purchase. We'll talk with them about that on the program. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Now, you know, of course, over the last uh, couple of days and weeks, really, uh, we've been talking about COVID-19 here in the province of Ontario and the uh, measures the government is taking uh, to try to battle uh, the pandemic and at the same time, of course, try to maintain a, an education program. And I know that you've emailed an awful lot of questions about some of the things that are going on. And to uh, address a lot of those, uh, we're so pleased to welcome to the program the Education Minister for the province of Ontario, Stephen Lecce, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Minister, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us again today. Good morning, Bill. Good to be on. I know your time is tight, so a couple of things I wanted to address, if you could, Minister. Uh, and, and I know I read your op-ed piece in the Toronto Sun the other day, and actually you, you've addressed some of those in there, but I wanted to get some comment here on the program about this. Uh, we talked about the uh, asymptomatic testing, targeted asymptomatic testing in some of the, uh, the high-risk schools, uh, especially around the GTA. And, and I know you've seen the results of these. And, and one of the concerning parts about this, of course, is when you started that, the first set of results indicated a number of positive tests that, uh, I guess, if they hadn't done the testing, you never would have discovered because they weren't showing any symptoms right. at all does it does right. it is it sending you toward the that we need to do more of that not just in the hot spots but right across the province with other schools as well you know i've taken a position that we need to do everything humanly possible and add every layer of protection in place it's why we stepped up asymptomatic testing in this province in those high-risk regions uh, i've said to i've said before i stand ready to expand it based on the advice of the chief medical officer of health Keep in mind, you know, uh, Bill, somewhat predictably, we went into a community of Toronto, for example, with a 16% positivity rate. Mm-hmm. And then we went to a school that had many active cases saying, okay, look, we, many cases are, uh, that we've identified, but look, is it possible that there are other students, other staff in the school right now, no symptoms, but maybe carrying the virus and therefore may pose a risk to their parents and grandparents for intergenerational families live together or to the staff or to their peers? So we did that testing, hundreds of students, the staff, and the parents were invited to test, and it reported back that you know roughly 19, 20 individuals uh, have COVID, notwithstanding no symptoms. So mm-hmm. it, what it did is it achieved the objective, the intended result bill, identify the cases, isolate the cases, give them the treatment they need, but get them out of the school so we don't see further spreading. So that's the, that's the why, why we did it. Um, and obviously, if the chief medical officer of health says, look, we think this program needs to be expanded into the next tier of communities, I will absolutely advance it. In fact, we've already funded over $23 million to do just that. So we're ready for that direction, uh, but we will follow the medical lead. Well, and to that end, though, Minister, when you say follow the medical lead, is that going to be based on, for instance, the color coding that uh, that uh, the province is enacting? Hamilton right now, of course, is is a is a red zone. Uh, London right. is is probably heading towards orange, looking at some of the number of cases there. Uh, do those numbers right. and does that designation dictate exactly what kind of protocol you'd follow? No, not really, because you know, right now we're we're doing uh, asymptomatic testing in another red zone in York, uh, for example, uh, and uh, in Ottawa. Right? I mean, those are two. They're not. Those two zones are not locked down like Toronto and Peel are. So it's not, you know, absolutely lined up uh, with that framework. The the, the the chief medical officer felt has uh, discretion to extend it where he believes the risk. Um, 
uh, poses a potential uh, threat to the safety of kids. So, uh, as I say, his direction and advice will inform what we do next. But I'm proud that Ontario really is in a unique position to offer this type of testing in addition to all the other layers of protection that no province has, especially the fact that we have twice the number of public health nurses in schools supporting our kids in the safety of schools. That really just gives me a sense of confidence while we're facing an incredible challenge, increasing community transmission, and yet 99.9% of kids in this province in school are COVID-free. What it shows you is that the Herculean effort of our staff, of the parents, the kids themselves to adapt, to learn, um, I really think is inspiring. And I don't take from, for a moment, Bill, that this isn't tough. It's, it's a challenge. But keeping schools open, I believe, is the most pressing societal imperative of any government, of any society. What is more important? And the reason why we restricted Hamilton in red, we, we uh, locked down Toronto and Peel and took action province-wide is because for this government and for the premier of the province, what matters most is our schools, our seniors, our long-term care, and we're going to continue to prioritize uh, those communities. And to that end, of course, I know there was some pressure earlier on to extend the Christmas break for our students uh, because of the concern and the increasing numbers. Uh, you've decided not to. And by the way, I agree with the decision. Are you comfortable with that? Yeah, I mean, my, my comfort is largely premised uh, by the chief medical officer of health. We pitched an idea to him to say, look, you know, what were your thoughts on this additional week, maybe in January? And his position was, you know, while you know, we appreciate that it was a good intention, the, the, the assumption is that students in high school especially are going to stay home alone and not congregate, not be together, not chill together while their parents are working. And the fear is, given that we, we, you and I both know the high positivity rate amongst that age bracket of 14 to 18, the concern was no, in the absence of adult supervision, the absence of a schedule and a structure, these kids may end up being together, only compounding the problem. So the safest place, according to the chief medical officer, with structure, with protocols, distancing, all that, is the school. So right now, uh, the advice is that we don't need to proceed on that basis, and we aren't. Uh, if anything changes, I'll be the first to communicate it. But um, uh, I think what it underscores is that the plan we have in place uniquely positions Ontario uh, to keep our schools open. I mean, look at Quebec. I mean, just contrast us to another province in the country. I'm not saying compares to the U.S. or some egregious example. In Quebec, they have more than almost three times the cases. Yet we have two million kids. They have one million children. Like it's. It, I mean, it, it, we've got to put this into context about. What is happening in Ontario? And I do not take an ounce of that credit. This is the frontline staff, our teachers, our students, everyone working together in a collaborative way with public health units on the ground. And I just want to celebrate the fact that we face difficulty. I do not for a moment, you know, uh, try to try to dilute how impactful this is in all of our lives. But we're doing something right. We're keeping schools open. We're adapting. Um, and I just want to express gratitude to everyone, particularly the parents, who have shouldered so much of this burden, uh, and I know who um, just want the very best for their children. Well, let me ask you about those parents, if I could, because I'm getting a lot of feedback, as I'm sure you are, Minister, too. Even the ones that are homeschooling uh, or relating right. remotely these days, uh, they said they're spending a lot more money at Staples and Walmart you know, for supplies and everything. I want you to expand, if you could, and, and, and describe the, uh, the Support for Learners program that you and the Premier talked about. Absolutely. We announced uh, the Support for Learners uh, initiative. It's uh, putting over... $300 million directly into parents' pockets. We've done this before, folks. You may recall earlier in the pandemic in the spring when we sent kids home, we provided relief to children, uh, for, to, for parents, for their children. It's $200 for every child in this province, 0 to 12. They don't have to be in a school. 
Um, but nonetheless, uh, every every child is eligible up to 12 for $200, and every child with special education needs uh, up to age 21 is eligible for $250. You apply online. The application process bill takes perhaps four or five minutes. There's a verification process. And then within two weeks, the government will deposit directly into your accounts the monies. It is easy. It is secure. And it can be done right now at Ontario.ca forward slash support for learners. So please, folks, if you're out there, there's a million people have already signed up. Sign up. Get these dollars in your pocket ahead of the holidays. I know you're going to put it to work. And we'll continue to do everything we can just to make life even incrementally a bit more affordable for you. We know how tough this is on parents, and we're going to be there for them. Well, I was going to ask you what the uptake is. If it's over a million already, obviously that yes. there's a need there, and I'm, I'm not surprised by the number at all. Minister, I know that you're on your way into a meeting. I really do appreciate you taking a few moments for us. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Have a good day. You too. Education Minister Stephen Lecce joining us on the Bill Keller Show here on 980 CFPL and 900 CHML. Glad you're with us today. Uh, a number of other things are happening, including uh, a rather controversial uh, report that's going to come to Hamilton City Council in the next little while, uh, and it has to do with the inquiry into the Red Hill Valley Parkway. Now, you know, of course, about the history of this, uh, the, the composition of the road itself, the design of the road, a number of things, uh, sadly, a number of fatalities that have taken place over the last little while, and uh, City Council uh, has asked for an inquiry into this. This. Uh, the concern here, of course, is the cost and the length of time it's taking. And uh, the latest report here is not encouraging, suggesting that it's actually going to cost probably more than the money the city council had allocated for this. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Ancaster Councillor Lloyd Ferguson. Uh, Councillor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. You're welcome, Bill. Thanks for having me on. I know you've had a quick overview of the uh, the report that came from uh, the solicitor, the city solicitor, Ms. Adi. Uh, your comments about this, Lloyd, about uh, how long this is taking and what looks like a, a, a probably an increase the amount of money that's going to go into this simply because it's costing so much well it does cost a lot of money it's at 4.8 million dollars so far our cfo mike zagarek put aside seven million dollars in the reserve fund to uh to cover the cost of this uh, judicial inquiry and uh, now our city solicitors tell me that we probably won't be able to do it for that which i find very disappointing and uh, I never supported this in the start, but I have to accept the corporate decision of council, and there's only two of us that opposed uh, going to a judicial review. Uh, we were given two choices. One is a judicial review and, and our inquiry, and one is an auditor general review, and where uh, an outside auditor would come in and, and do something very similar. Uh, he had the right of subpoena and uh, to bring in, whether it's witnesses or documents, but because uh, I, I would expect, uh, because of political pressure, um, the majority of council supported the judicial review. And once we make that decision, it's out of our hands. We can't touch it again. We can't. We can't it, um, try to change it. We can't influence it. Uh, the judge has full right to move it ahead to his conclusion. Uh, we have been into it now for a year and a half. I think it was April 2019, so a year and a half. And we're hearing now that the hearings won't start until the spring. So. This is going to be well over two years. An auditor general's review was told it would cost three hundred fifty thousand dollars to be done in four months. So, um, such is the case. Uh, the, the majority of council supported this under a lot of public pressure. Why is it taking so long, though, Lloyd? I'm, I'm looking at because it's not as if the city has not cooperated. I mean, you've you've turned over a, a great deal of documentation, uh, and you know, they seem to be pushing this down the road. Of, uh, I'm not quite sure exactly. You know, the, everybody's saying right now it's because of the pandemic, and I understand that's going to be a factor. But is it really that much of a roadblock that it's holding up this inquiry? 
Quite frankly, Bill, I'm hearing everybody, the reason for not doing something is because of the pandemic. And I'm not sure yeah. how big of an impact that had on, on this thing. Uh, uh, the documents were all produced by the summertime for the city. They're still waiting for documents from the province, which I guess is what's holding it up now. And then they got to go through the hearing. And, and of course, the big difference between, uh, 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 which I think influenced some, some members of council, uh, once again, uh, it was Councilor Johnson and I that opposed going this route, but um, it's it, it just uh, a long, drawn-out process. And and uh, the, the example that was provided to us when we were debating this was that computer scandal in Toronto. And it took about the same amount of time, and it's going to cost about the same amount of money, it looks like. Uh, we won't know till it's done. But these are very expensive things to go through. And members of the public push hard to do a judicial review. They don't understand the consequences of it. I mean, we could have had this finished um, a year ago and uh, chose not to go that route, which was recommended by the professionals. So we're into it. There's not much we can do about it now. Uh, I don't think there would ever be a a two-thirds majority vote to rescind this now and stop it when we're already into it for almost $5 million. So I guess we're going to have to sit back and see how it goes. Well, and, and again, that's why I was asking, and I, I know you don't have the definitive answer because you're not doing the inquiry yourself. I get that, Lloyd. But, you know, to suggest, well, it's because of the pandemic. The documents are sitting on somebody's desk, and the, the, the pandemic is not stopping anybody from reading these and assessing what's going on or what did go on in situations like this. And my understanding is they haven't actually even begun the interviews of the people that they may want to talk to about this from the city. Uh, and that's probably not going to happen, I'm told, now until possibly springtime. So uh, I, this, this is probably going to run into the next municipal election before you get any sort of result from this. Well, I suspect to uh, it won't be totally finished. I, I suspect I'm going to speculate, and I shouldn't do that. But I'll speculate it'll be early 2022 before the the ruling comes down or the decision comes down. And uh, you know that's unfortunate because uh, you know it's interesting also when um, we were scheduled to repave that road anyway because it beats its its life in the surface course, and we milled that off, replaced it, and there's. The last time I checked, and it has been a couple months now, but there's been no serious accidents on there since the road is repaved. And, uh, and, and reduced the speed limit. And reduced the speed limit, yes, and did a lot more enforcement. Uh, the police did a great job of going out there and slowing people down with the enforcement measures that they used. And and, and so now it's time, I guess, to Monday morning quarterback and hear what the, ju- the judge says in his um, great experience on, on what went wrong and what caused this. Asphalt does polish with time. Uh, it, it, the aggregate, um, is the sharp edges on the aggregate and asphalt tend to wear off under traffic, as you would expect, and it starts to polish. And that's why there's a, a restricted life on surface course asphalt, because it does become polished, and which probably makes it slipperier. I'm not an expert on that side of it, but it probably makes it slipperier. And and between those three activities, whether it's the reduced speed limit, whether it's more enforcement or the resurfacing, so far, it seems to have fixed the problem. But uh, once you go down this rabbit hole, and you already are in this rabbit hole, there's no turning back. I mean, if this cost spirals over the seven million or eight million, nine million, I'm only speculating here. But I mean, uh, you, I guess you have no choice except you know just to pay the bill. Yep, open up the taxpayer's wallet and uh, keep the money flowing. Uh, you know, we do have some some reserve funds that we can tap into for this. But if, if, you know, my view and. and I, I got to be careful on this because I always have to accept the corporate decision of council. I get sure. that, and, and uh, but in, in my view, I would rather have spent that seven million dollars resurfacing more roads or fixing more sidewalks or building more affordable housing because uh, we have a lot of pressures on us right now. There's a lot of controversial issues going on, and but 
Uh, you would never get a two-thirds majority of the council when you're already into it by five million bucks not to finish it. Yeah, I, it is what it is, I suppose. But, you know, you're going to continue to get bills for service, I guess, as this goes on. And, and like I say, it seems to be in a holding pattern right now. And, and I, I understand that, uh, you know, Mr. Justice Wilton Siegel is in charge of this whole thing, uh, has a fabulous reputation. I'm sure he'll do a very thorough job, he and his staff. But it's it's awfully frustrating to, to know that it's going to take this long and cost this much money. And, and they're not moving as quickly as they should. That's 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 got to really stick with you. Yeah, he's had to hire a lot of staff. He had to hire a lawyer, you know, he had an administrator, I believe, a communications person, and others to support him through this process. And and so I think some of the witnesses have been interviewed, uh, but uh, there's no testimony even started yet. They're, they're, they haven't um, testified under oath. And because of this judicial review, it'll all be public. It'll be broadcast out the, the, the witnesses' uh, testimony so the public can see it. Hello? Councillor Lloyd Ferguson, thanks so much for uh, sharing yeah, uh, some we, time I with us. We to lose you there for a couple of minutes, Bill. But, well, uh, this is the joys of broadcasting remotely. It happens from time to time. Okay. Ta- take care, Lloyd. We'll talk okay, to you again bye-bye. soon. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk politics and, uh, and, uh, and medicine, and the two are is so much intertwined, of course, these days. I guess it's inevitable that the uh, the federal government's handling of the COVID-19 vaccines would become political because politics has shaped public perceptions of pandemic severity since it began. And, and a lot of the opinions people have, either pro or con about the vaccines, uh, seem to be drawn along party lines. Global's Tina Trujani's got some details. A day after Britain authorized use of the Pfizer vaccine, calls are growing louder here about when Health Canada will approve something, why it's taking so long, and how the vaccines will be rolled out across the country. With case counts and deaths rising, the Conservatives say Canadians need to know. And leader Aaron O'Toole says Ottawa hasn't been too forthcoming with much information, but that's what today's motion is all about. We'll be asking for timelines for each of the possible vaccines, approval when they'll be received. Will we be getting 50,000 in the first few weeks? We need a timeline. The Prime Minister says his government continues to fine-tune a plan with its partners. Canadians will be covered on vaccines. The Canadian Armed Forces will play a role in the distribution of a vaccine, and General Jonathan Vance says this country is just as ready as any other ahead of any vaccine approval and arrival. Tina Trajani, Global News. So where are we on this? Are we as upset about this as, uh, as Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole seems to think? Uh, let's uh, bring Dave Schultz into the conversation. Dave is the Executive Vice President of Leger Marketing, who have done extensive research uh, about exactly how Canadians are feeling uh, about this issue especially. David, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us again. Good to have you. Good to have myself here as well. Thank you. Uh, uh, just as you and I were talking, I was just looking at the, the monitor here, and Mr. O'Toole again is is calling for uh, you know uh, more details from the government, etc. Uh, it's it's interesting though with the polling that you've done over the last little while, Dave, that this does seem to be divided among party lines. Uh, that uh, conservatives seem to share Mr. O'Toole's concern, uh, NDP and Liberal supporters not so much. I, that, that does fall into place, um, but it's interesting. You look across Canada. Um, regardless of party line, we are generally taking a safety over speed of access look at it. So it's uh, it's interesting to see how Canadians, regardless of party line, are falling out. But yes, conservatives are uh, people who would vote conservative are getting a little more uh, antsy than people who would vote liberal or NDP. Well, and I, I can understand that. I mean, that's the, the the consensus I'm getting from the conversations we've had on our program over the last couple of days. Uh, there, there was always a concern, wasn't there, even before we understood how fast track this this process was going. Uh, that okay, are they skipping any steps? Are they sure that this is absolutely safe? And I still like there's some trepidation about that. Well, there, there really is. So if you look at two weeks ago, 
we ask the question, uh, are, when the vaccines come out, are you going to be first in line? In other words, are you ready to get the first vaccine that shows up? Because we're talking about four different vaccines coming out at different times. And at that time, 37% of Canadians said they wanted the first one available, and 33% were willing to wait. Two weeks later, it's starting to shift. Now it's only 28% who want the first one and 45% who are willing to wait. So as we're starting to get closer to that vaccine date, Canadians are starting to get a little more cautious about the first one to market. Well, that's interesting, and I'm wondering what the rationale would be. You'd think that, you know, in the passage of time, people might be a little more comfortable, but it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating to see that they're, they're getting a little more nervous about it. it. It really is. And at the same time, we have, you know, we asked the question, because we wanted to make sure these aren't, uh, you know, it isn't anti-vaxxers that are, are leading this discussion or people who are against vaccines overall. Uh, only 9% of Canadians view vaccines as dangerous. So the, the majority of Canadians see vaccines as a positive thing, so, but uh, they would still want to take that, that wait and see. And the general consensus is that we as Canadians don't think we're going to have widespread vaccinations happening till spring or summer. So that was the other thing that we started to find. We asked Canadians, when do you think vaccines will start to come out? And uh, over 50% say spring and summer. Are we comfortable with that? We really, we actually are as Canadians. When we asked, uh, are you concerned that maybe other countries are going to have access to vaccines before us? 48% or almost half said, no, I'm not concerned. I'm willing to wait um, to make sure this is done right. It may well be because we've got some concerns about the vaccine and the the effects of it. So in other words, UK, you go ahead. America, you go ahead. Let's see how it works on you, and, and then, then I'll roll up my sleeve. That might be the attitude we're taking. Well, and it, but it, it, over time, Canadians, you know, and this goes down to trust in government, but trust in our approval of drugs has always been high uh, among Canadians, regardless of party lines. And obviously we're putting pressure on the government now to move things along. But we do trust that when the government says this drug is ready for us, we're going to be ready for it as well. It's just this time we want to wait and see a little bit. But that's it's an interesting point, and, and it's something I think maybe it gets lost on, on Canadians sometimes, uh, is, is the process, the approval process. Uh, I, I mean, how many times over the last number of years, Dave, have we heard Canadians say, well, how come they've got such and such a medication down in the States and we don't have it up here? Uh, it takes that much longer up here to get the approval. I mean, they're, they're very cautious at Health Canada, uh, not that they aren't with the, uh, the FDA down in the States, but, I mean, uh, it, it, that seems, I think, maybe is where we're getting this, this nervousness from. It's, it's because a lot of this has been expressed down in the States because they always thought that they were rushing things because of what the the White House was trying to get them to do before the, the you know the federal election last month. Uh, that seems to have passed, but I think maybe that some of that that concern and fear has gravitated up onto this side of the border now. Well, definitely, you know, and, and it's, as a pollster, we work in uh, perception uh, as opposed to reality sometimes. So when you hear uh, the president of the United States saying this is going to happen no matter what. And this is the same person who has suggested that bleach is an alternative to fight mm-hmm. COVID. There is that, okay, is there so, is something potentially being rushed here? So I, I think Canadians are cautious. We're, we're optimistic, but we're generally cautious when it comes to uh, making sure we're going to be healthy. It's interesting, too, the the... the 
the research you've done here, and I'm glad you brought that up at the beginning of our conversation. Uh, we are, for all intents and purposes, I guess, uh, overwhelmingly compliant with the things that are gone on. I know there, we we've covered, of course, the the anti-mask uh, rallies that have gone on in some communities over the last little while. The the handful of people that have done that, and of course the the uh, the, the restaurant down in Tobacco a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. where the guy actually got charged. But by and large, uh, and I'm sure you've seen this, Dave, too, and it's certainly reflected in your in your survey. Uh, we're wearing masks, and and we're doing what we're supposed to be doing for the most part. We are. And, you know, if I go back, we've been doing this poll every week since March or beginning of mid-March when uh, we started to shut down the country. And one of the things that we've asked is overall fear of contracting the virus. We're still at 60% of Canadians, which is a rather high number compared to it's been between 50 and 64. So we're right in the middle of that right now, still afraid of contracting the virus. And we asked a little bit about the holidays coming up at our recent poll as well. 60% of Canadians are in support of banning holiday gatherings in order to help keep us in control. So we are a compliant population. We do want to follow the rules. Well, and, and I think we grasp the severity of this, too. Maybe we didn't in March and April, just thinking, you know, it's something that happens to somebody else. But we've seen the rising totals, and you know, especially the second wave now. Uh, that doesn't surprise me. And I, I, what did surprise me, though, I read that section, too, about the, the, the holiday vacations and, and the family gatherings. I, I thought there'd be a lot of people that said, okay, enough is enough. It's Christmas time. we got to do this. But, uh, I mean, I, we'll find out, I guess, in, in the passage of time over the next three weeks or so. But I'm, I'm really getting the sense that, that, that you your, your marketing is bang on here. The research you've done here with Leger is bang on that we're saying, look, at you know, just staying with the people under our own roof right now. We'll just, you know, we'll see each other when it's safer again. That seems to be the attitude. That seems to be the attitude. You know, almost three quarters, 71% have changed their holiday plans from what they would normally be. So that's this Christmas. I mean, if it continued for another Christmas, we may see things differently. But um, I think people are saying this is this year we can just be with our people in our house, people under our roofs, and let's, uh, let's wait this out because we are hearing that a vaccine is on the way. We know it's, we expect it to come in spring at the earliest in Canada, but we are willing to, uh, to do what's right this Christmas. You, as you've been tracking this over the weeks, uh, and as you say, since March, since the, this whole thing really started, uh, and as I say, there's more people that are concerned about it right now and, and fearful of contracting it. Uh, did, did we grasp the severity of this? I mean, we seem to, I, I guess it's maybe a Canadian attitude here, Dave, that uh, we're, just, we're in this for the long haul, so let's just take it easy and just ride through this and, and we'll get through this, as opposed to looking for the quick fix. Well, one of the questions that we've asked all along has been, uh, do you think uh, this is the worst of the crisis is behind us? Are we in it now, or is it yet to come? Right now, 45% of Canadians think this is the worst, but 35% still think there's more to come. So we are, it's really about riding this out. Wow. Interesting stuff, as always, to get uh, the, the, the pulse of the country uh, from uh, Leger, as always. Dave, thanks so much for the time. Great talking with you again today. Stay well. Right, thank you, Bill. You too. <laughs> Dave Schultz, okay. uh, Executive Vice President for Leger Marketing and Research. Uh, they do this, as Dave mentioned, on a weekly basis, so we'll certainly keep an eye on that and see how Canadians are really feeling about this. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A major step being taken towards development of a film studio near Hamilton's West Harbor. Uh, this group is actually a story that we told you about, about, I guess, about a year or so ago, but now they're back there and they're ready to get rocking on this thing. The Aon Studio Group uh, has confirmed the purchase of an 80 80- 
80,000 square foot manufacturing building on Queen Street North, uh, which is going to open uh, February the 1st. Joining us to talk about this is Mike Bruce. Mike is a partner at the Aon Studio Group. Uh, Mike, first and foremost, thanks so much for joining us on the program. Great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. Well, let's talk a little bit about this development. I mean, we were all excited when we heard a little while ago that you guys were, were moving into town here, and, uh, you know, we were always wondering about what was going to happen to this end of town. Uh, I don't think anybody in their wildest uh, expectations thought it was going to be as great as this is. This is this is a big deal for the city. Well, it's a big deal for us as well. It's uh, something we've, uh, you know, kind of had in our, our hopes and dreams for quite some time, so it's it's good to see it finally coming to fruition. Now, we're talking about the, the Barton Tiffany area for people in the Hamilton area that understand that. And uh, I don't want to drag you into the politics, but at one time that was a proposed stadium site, which didn't ever happen. So, with, but, you know, I wonder, okay, what's coming next? What attracted you to, to this to this city, first of all, and to this particular area, Mike? Well, I, I've been in, so I've been working in, you know, the entertainment industry for yeah. the better part of 30 yeah. years. And, uh, you know, the last 15 as a, a location manager, which, which deals with the on, you know, filming on site logistics for, uh, film productions. And, uh, about five years ago, I, I partnered up with some people in Etobicoke to open a studio and, uh, and it, it just kind of always struck me, uh, and uh, as well as many of the other of my colleagues, that you know, we as much filming as we did in Hamilton, there wasn't a a you know a, a proper studio uh, in you know of any scale uh, uh, in Hamilton that you know productions could come and and set up and and kind of have the whole thing you know centered in Hamilton as opposed to just uh, using it as a filming location, which is uh, which is also great, but. Um, you know, to have that center of gravity uh, kind of already in Hamilton was, uh, it, it was just kind of a natural, um, uh, you know, uh, part of our wish list to, to uh, get into Hamilton. We've always loved the city. It's always been very easy to film there. Uh, there's, uh, you know, as many varied great locations uh, as you can, uh, you know, want for, in, all within a, you know, a 10-minute drive of anywhere in Hamilton. Um, so it's it, it just kind of it, it kind of sat on our radar and and uh, for quite a while and and we just put it into action uh, about three and a half years ago and and here we are. And, and for people who may not be aware, rel- relatively new to the community, I mean, the, the, you know, filmmakers have been going on in Hamilton for quite a long time now. Uh, I guess because of the architecture and uh, a number of TV series that you watch, uh, well, The Good Witch that I know many people watch is filmed here. Uh, a lot of it right on Lock Street, as a matter of fact, and uh, the the home of uh, of. Uh, that's used there is the, the domicile of course is the white room which is right behind city hall murdoch mysteries is here uh, lots of movie shots here as 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 you know mike from taking all the time uh and, and i guess it's it's is it the architecture what is it that attracts uh, there's so many different places here that you'll watch something on tv and say hey that's hamilton uh why is is, is it is it the, the fact that we've got this mixture of old and new is it the, the character of the buildings what is it? it it yeah it's all of that and it's more it's uh uh, you know, that just like, again, you have, you know, such a, a varied, um, you know, uh, a ver- such a variety of, of different locations from old to new. And, and you know, the, the fact that, you know, the, the heritage, uh, uh, you know, parts of, of Hamilton have been so well preserved. And, you know, you, you have just, uh, you know, so many different styles of architecture, all within a really kind of, you know, close proximity to one another. So it makes kind of navigating from one set to another, you know, very easy. Um, you know, just the the amount of space to to breathe and and places to park, and you know, just the willingness of the different communities to uh, to accommodate us. It's it's uh, it really does make it a, a pretty special place to to work. 
Well, and the, and the, it's the creativity, I guess, of the people in your industry that just shows it. I still remember when they made the uh, uh, the Hulk movie a number of years ago. Ed Norton was the Hulk. And for people, yeah. I know there'd be two or three different ones. They actually built a whole section about two blocks long of Main Street. It, w- it was all facade, of course, but you know they That's thought, right. okay, we want, and it was just incredible. I was coming to work every morning at five o'clock, and I said, this is this is, of course, you'd see all the lights on because they did a lot of the filming at night, uh, and it was just incredible the way they they do this. So there's there's no shortage of, of commitment here, no shortage of money, but this the uh, the, the thing that always intrigued me was, boy, what would happen if, and, and you guys are, are that next step, aren't you, to actually say, look at, you know, it's great to have location shots like this, but we always wondered, uh, what if they build a studio? What, what, what are the, the, what the potential uh, outcomes of that? What, what, what can happen as a result of this? Because what you're building here is enormous. Yeah, well, the, yeah, I mean, go bigger, go bigger, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I think I you know a place like Hamilton deserves it. It's a, you know it's a it's a you know bona fide metropolitan area you know in its own right, and it's you know it's always kind of lived in the shadow of of Toronto, which has always been the epicenter of film in in Ontario. And I just think it's about time that you know Hamilton. Um, you know, it, it's, well, I mean, it's not about time because it's, uh, the light has been shining on Hamilton for, you know, quite some time now, but it's, it's about time that, you know, we're, we're at that tipping point. It, it needs to kind of be seen as its own, uh, its own destination and, and just the amount of, you know, creative people and creative spaces and like, you know, just the support, uh, you know, it, it kind of from the ground up. Uh, for this type of thing, it's it's just it's time for for Hamilton to to be you know on the in the spotlight, and I, I believe it's it's happening and, and will continue to happen. So, just if you could just draw a picture for us, Mike, what are we actually going to see upon completion here? This is. Uh you know, for anybody who's watched TV or watched movies, and you know, you'd see some of the the great movie studios in in Hollywood back in the glory days, and you'd see the sound stages and and, and that sort of thing, where they were actually creating scenes and, and filming right there inside the building. Uh, is that what we're in for here? Yeah. Well, yeah. There's uh, so there, it, it's going to be a, a little bit more of a. Um you know, I, I guess a, a different kind of uh, iteration than, than what you might be used to as far as, like, you know, looking at pictures of Warner Brothers Studios or, yeah, yeah. you know, any of the old studios in the in the States sort of thing. And But we're also not going for, you know, the big gray boxes that, you know, people uh, imagine when they, when they look at something, you know, like one of the studios, uh, uh, purpose-built studios downtown. Um, so, they, uh, you know, with regards to this first building, you know, it's, it's pretty turnkey uh, as is, so you know anything we do now is is only going to enhance that. So, you know, our 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 desire with this first piece here is just to you know uh, uh, really clean it up and and uh, you know start start making that you know plant that flag in in the area and, and make sure that you know it starts to be revitalized in a way that's going to be you know visually appealing and uh, you know on top of everything else that goes on. So. Um, and then the rest of the area is, uh, it, you know, it's still in, uh, you know, in the in the stages of, of being um, kind of planned and, um, you know, uh, getting renderings done and, and really trying to figure out what's the best uh, program for that space uh, to in- encompass, you know, all, all that we're trying to put in there. And, you know, that it ranges from everything from, you know, purpose-built studios to, you know, post-production facilities and, you know, a, a, a crew training facility that, you know, uh, in conjunction with uh, the local schools and universities. Um, so it's, and then, you know, along with, you know, some some uh, um, uh, some living space and uh, retail, that sort of thing. 
I'm glad you brought that up about the potential here for this. Uh, as you mentioned, there's one building that you can call at the anchor, I guess. But you're, we're talking about a 14-acre uh, plot of land here, all all told. Is is it easier for you in a in a development stage like this, Mike, to actually have a, a I guess essentially a blank canvas? In other words, you know, there's there's nothing there of any consequence right now that you can pretty much do what you want, where you want, when you want. Yeah, well, yeah, still within reason. I mean, we, sure. we still have to, you know, do something that's going to fit in with the, you know, the the city that we're trying to uh, live in. And, and uh, you know, we've been we've been having discussions with some of the local neighborhood associations and uh, that sort of thing. So, uh, but yes, it, you know, to, in short, it, it certainly does help to start with a blank canvas because then, you know, it's, you know, it's limitless what you can create. Uh, and with that size of property, obviously, and, and again, I, I don't want to, you know, draw people back to the 1940s MGM studios, like you were saying, but uh, the potential for backlots and filming there and, and recreating different scenes, etc. In other words, instead of using some of the uh, the, the neighborhood shots in, in Hamilton, you can actually create your own, as as we've seen. Anybody who's been to Universal Studios down in Disney or in uh, Orlando would understand that, you know, they tour some of the backlots there and get an idea just uh, what the filmmaking is, is all about. So there's, there's all kinds of potential for you to, to do that sort of thing here too isn't there that's right yeah absolutely absolutely um you know not just this site but there are other sites in hamilton that uh that are very kind of ripe for that sort of backlot um you know feel um and, and there have been actually quite a few productions um you know kind of looking around for for outdoor space that they can build uh those those backlot type sets um so it, it, yeah i mean the, again the potential is limitless so if you can think it like it's you know, it's kind of um, it's kind of coming. <laughs> it's interesting about what's happening here, and like I say, if you drive around town, you're always going to see, uh, you know, some street blocked off because they're shooting something, whether it's a movie or one of the TV shows that we referred to uh, a couple of minutes ago. But now that you're building this particular thing for all you years of, in the business, Mike, what does this bring? What's the next level for Hamilton? What what movies? What what enterprises can we attract here to say, oh, you've got that now? Uh, now we're interested in in, in coming there. Well, I, I think I think it'll just uh, you know continue to grow um, you know it kind of as it has been like the you know that the type of productions that are coming into Hamilton right now are are big you know temple productions and uh, you know large large uh, scale series and uh, that sort of thing. So I think it just you know it just kind of helps to build on that and and um, you know um, I, I guess. I don't want to say legitimize because it's, you know, Hamilton is a legitimate, you know, filming community, but it is, um, it, it just, um, it, it, it now makes it, I, I'll, I'll liken it to when they built like, you know, Pinewood in Toronto, it, it kind of okay. you know, put a beacon in the center of the city, um, you know, that, okay, we're, we're, we're serious now. We've, we, you know, we've got, uh, not only the locations, but the facilities to, um, to allow you to, you know, come directly to Hamilton and not have to worry about, you know, traveling in from other jurisdictions or, or whatever the case. Well, we've seen that in Toronto. I mean, I've got uh, friends and relatives in Toronto that said, you know, at any given time, you could be walking around in Yorkville or on Bloor Street or something and bump into Matt Damon or somebody because they're making a movie in town. Yeah. Uh, and and that's, that's starting right. to happen. I mean, we've seen that, obviously, with some of the shots here at and some of the shows that have been on. But it's it's that creation, and it's fascinating to see the way the industry has evolved in this country. Uh, is, is it the Canadian dollar still a factor here? I mean, on, on the plus side of the ledger uh, that would make some of these American companies look north? I mean, because, as you say, Toronto's always been 
been a, a, a favored location. Vancouver has a, has a, a bursting uh, entertainment industry there. Uh, I guess, you know, yeah. it's not too far up the coast, of course. So a lot of TV shows that we watched back in the 80s and 90s were actually shot in Vancouver. Uh, but it's it's less expensive to, to do the, the, the work here in, in Canada right now, I would think, because of the, ch- the exchange in the dollar. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it certainly helps. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's many reasons why, you know, uh, production might come to Ontario. Um, you know, our, our, our economy is pretty solid. Our, our tax credit system is, is pretty solid. Um, the dollar certainly helps. Um, you know, we, we have, uh, you know, we have enough crew and uh, support space and, and everything, um, you know, kind of already set up so that it, it makes it, like it's easy to come to uh, to Ontario to uh, to film. Um, so it's it, there's many factors that go into it, but the dollar certainly helps. Well, and there's government support, which is nice too. I mean, anybody who watches the uh, the Hallmark movies, especially now during Christmas season, they they, they just seem to rank, rank, crank those things out one after another. Yeah. Uh, but you watch the credits at the end, and invariably there's some mention there about you know, some some fund from either the the province or the, or the federal government, or sometimes both, uh, which I guess is a, is a huge attraction to move a lot of those up here. Anybody who watches those movies on well, it's the Women's Network here, one of the core stations up here in Canada, uh, where they run the uh, the Christmas movies all day and all night. It seems. Uh, about uh, 99% of those, Mike, are shot in Canada, aren't they? Well, I, I, I don't know the exact percentage, but I can tell you that, you know, I see that name a lot, Hallmark, uh, you know, here in Ontario. So, it's yeah, they're very active up here, which is great. Um, you know, um, I, I think they're just, um, you know, they're, they're kind of a drop in the bucket, um, which kind of gives you a sense of, of scale of, of how busy it, it actually is. Because, yes, they're, they're active all the time, and, and they're only a small percentage of, of the, uh, the, the amount of production that actually goes on in Ontario uh, at any given time. Mike, what about companion uh, developments uh, in that area? I mean, you guys are going to build and you're going to build big, and this, this is going to be a, a huge boost for not just the city, but specifically for that neighborhood. Uh, and it's it's a classic example, I guess, of, a, of a, a rejuvenated neighborhood. It was an old industrial place for many, many years. Uh, you've seen the waterfront down there in the West, the West Harbor, uh, which was just awful about 30 years ago, and it's turned into one of the most beautiful spots in Ontario now because of the work that they've done. Uh, do you see further development? Do you see further investment in that area? Area because of you as that anchor there. I, well, I, uh, yeah, I, I think I, I think it's a natural, um, you know, a natural thing that once you know somebody starts to uh, revitalize an area, that it um, you know kind of opens it up to more, uh, you know, it just it put, puts more eyes on it in a in a you know in a positive light, uh, which I, I really think it deserves because you know Hamilton has one of the most beautiful waterfronts in. In, in the country, <laughs> you know, to put it bluntly, um, you know, looking out over the, the bay there and, and Coots Paradise and, uh, you know, I think it, it really deserves to be uh, revitalized. Um, so I, I think that, you know, there is going to be um, a lot more uh, happening in, in, in by way of, of you know, uh, either partnership developments or, you know, people coming in on their own or uh, whatever the case is. Well, I, I see nothing but good things happening here. As uh, the the council for the area said, so, you know, success breeds success, uh, and we're 
very, very happy about the, about the announcement. I know that uh, the pandemic has kind of slowed right. everything down, and uh, that kind of, I guess, uh, slowed down some of the, the work that had to be done, some of the remediation work and some of the studies that had to be done. But you're, it's full That's steam right. ahead, and you guys are moving on this. Congratulations again, Mike, to you and your partners uh, for, for this fabulous announcement. And I, I know that we're going to have a lot more conversations about this in the uh, weeks and years ahead uh, as uh, Aon uh, sticks their, their flag in the, pole, in the north end of the city here and uh, adds on to this incredible uh, announcement today. Thanks so much for the time today anytime thank you great talking with you mike bruce who is a partner in the aon studio group uh located in the old tiffany area that's down by the west harbor and uh, they start their operations on uh, february 1st but as mike says a lot more development too as they start to build on to that 14 acre site down there pretty exciting stuff the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 chml the bill kelly podcast is available on apple podcast google podcast or wherever you get your podcasts from you can also listen to the bill kelly show weekdays from nine till noon on 900 chml i'm bill kelly thanks again for listening and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast it's free so you never miss an episode and make sure that you rate and review